we are going to spend about 12 weeks probably talking about the parables of Jesus. And so for the next, I mean, for the summer, we will talk about the parables of Jesus. Into the fall, we will turn our attention to the Old Testament minor prophets. And so you can call this season parables and prophets in City Light Church, all right? What's the significance of the parables? Why parables? Why did Jesus tell parables? If you've ever spent any significant time attending church, then you've probably heard, and I probably even shared, that the meaning of parables are typically, or the significance of parables are often boiled down to this. They are earthly stories that are intended to clarify and communicate heavenly truths. Have you heard that? Anybody heard that in the room before? Amen. So this is what parables are typically defined as. And of course, there is a sense in which that is very true, but there is also a little more depth to Jesus's intent in sharing with us in the form of parables. Matthew chapter 13 gives us this complicated reasoning behind why Jesus shares with us in parables. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, it says, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's a very odd passage especially when you're trying to understand why is Jesus telling parables. And it doesn't sound like when he explains it that he's made it any simpler for us to understand. But here's what we know based on what we're reading. The purpose of parables is not always to illuminate and to clarify. According to Jesus, in the passage we just read, the purpose of parables is oftentimes to obstruct and to confuse. Now, to really drive this truth home, Jesus quotes a passage from the book of Isaiah. And this passage is, is talking about a point where Isaiah is being called by God. It's, it, it's in the moment where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. The Bible says the train of, the, of, the, of his robe is filling the temple. The Bible says that there, that there are angelic beings who are present in that moment, feet covered, eyes covered. And they're declaring hold the holiness of God. And Isaiah in that moment understands how unholy he is. And he says, I'm a man, woe, because I am a man of unclean lips. And God says, I will clean those lips right now. And when he cleanses Isaiah, Isaiah says, will you use me, God? Will you send me? Because God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, send me, God. 
And then God says, here's what I need you to tell them. And he begins to talk about this. Go to these people that will not listen, seeing but they will not see, hearing but they will not hear. And you dedicate your life, Isaiah, speaking to a barren nation. And he says, I'll go. Send me. And so this is what Jesus has in mind as he is talking about the purpose of parables. There are times where the purpose of parables is to serve as judgment to those who will not embrace the message, to further obstruct the mystery of Christ that has been rejected. There are times where people are rejecting the message. And so Jesus will speak in the form of parables as a form of judgment. That's heavy. But it's not the only thing. He also says this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16 and 17. He says, but blessed are your eyes, talking to the disciples, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You are blessed, Jesus tells his disciples, because you can see and your eyes have been opened to the mysteries. And then further down in verse 34, we get this in chapter 13. I'm still giving you the significance. He says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables indeed. He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now we see that there's another sense in which parables are given to us, to unlock what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so in one sense, the parables will further hide the meaning of the arrival of Christ for those who are rejecting the message, and it will serve as judgment. But in another sense, in no less sense, the Lord will use it to give sight in order to see. The Lord will use parables to reveal the mysteries about himself that have been hidden. To reveal it to who? To the people that actually desire to see. So it will bring clarity to those that desire to see and obstruction to those who do not. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus says is the purpose. D.A. Carson boils it down to these two reasons. Parables are given to us Jesus tells us the parables, uh, or tells us parables because in line with Scripture, his parables blind, deafen, and harden. But Jesus also tells us parables because in line with Scripture, his message reveals things hidden in Scripture. Those are the two reasons. So throughout the summer, we want to take our time navigating through the stories that will give further clarity to those that want to see and that will further obstruct those who do not. With that said, let's look at our first parable. Beginning in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up, chapter 18, verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? This parable begins in verse 21 with a very straightforward question. How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Before we get too far into Jesus' answer, let's 
stop for a moment, pause, and just kind of sit on Peter's question. First, the most likely reason that Peter asked Jesus this question is because of the events and the teaching and the words that Jesus just gave them just a few moments ago, a few verses up. Chapter 18, verses 10 through 15. In chapter 18, verses 10 through 15, Jesus has laid out the details for a very serious process that is intended to help the church deal with unaddressed and unchecked sin against one another, a process that we've, uh, we've come to know as church discipline. In other words, when people get out of order and refuse to repent, then the church has to take action. We start in verse 15 with, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. Go and tell the sister her faults privately. And if they listen, then praise God, you have won your brother, you have won your sister, and we can move on. However, if they refuse to repent, then the second step is to bring a few more folks with you, those who have either borne witness to this or those who can speak to it with some sort of wisdom as they hear both of the cases being made. And if that group determines that, yes, this person is in sin, this brother or this sister is in sin, and they say you need to repent, and then you still refuse to repent, then the next step is for this matter to be brought before the entire assembly of the church in order that the church has an opportunity to plead with this brother or plead with this sister for repentance. However, if they still refuse to repent, then Jesus says we should treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, meaning that we should treat them like someone who is now on the outside of our Christian fellowship. Because when we refuse to live by the authority and the principles given to us by Jesus Christ, we put the unity of the entire church at risk and we run the risk of inducing or introducing greater sin into the church and we bring shame to the witness of the church that we are called to represent in the world. So thus, those are, again, these are hard teachings, but they're all teachings that Jesus has given us. I'm not reading you anything that's not there in chapter 18. But here's an important point that we need to recognize. The refusal to repent is not normal. In the life of the church, there are many occasions where we are sinned against. And there are many occasions when we are the ones doing the sinning against another person. And on most of those occasions, they end in confession and repentance. They end with, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Would you forgive me? Yes, we are certainly sinners, but many of us are sinners who understand that we have been redeemed by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are living with an eager desire to grow more and more like him. That's what a lot of us in the church are here to do. So while there are occasions where there are people who are unrepentant, there are a ton of occasions where there are people who are actually are, uh, who actually are repentant. And Peter seems to anticipate those people in his question in verse 21. Because in his question in verse 21, what Peter is saying basically is this. Uh, so Jesus, um, how many times do I have to forgive the repentant people? We just talked about what we need to do with the unrepentant people. But what about the repentant people? How often should we forgive them before we toss them out of the church. 
And Peter says, seven times? And you might think to yourself, Peter's just kind of tossing numbers around, but really the seven is actually pretty significant. The first thing we have to consider when we hear the word seven is that the traditional uh, rabbinic view towards forgiving someone who has sinned against you would have been to forgive them only up to three times. So traditional Jewish culture would have said, hey, they come to you, they ask for forgiveness, you, you, you extend grace, and they come back again, same thing, and then they come back again, the same thing. All right, you, you can cut them off now. It's over. It's fine. In fact, one historical quote that I pulled from uh, that talks about this very thing, it says, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. So Peter's commitment to forgiveness would have been seen by many as generous. Peter's like, hey, I'm taking it up a notch. I'm doubling it. It's not just three, but it's seven now. Double plus one. Right, Jesus? Isn't, isn't this great? I mean, in fact, I'm sure in Peter's mind, he's probably representing Jesus well. Jesus always takes it up a notch. So let me anticipate that, and I'll take it up a notch for him. Another useful thing that we consider when we're thinking about this ideal of seven is that seven has significance in biblical literature. Tim Mackey, the bibli- a biblical theologian, uh, uh, A biblical scholar, theologian, and language scholar says this about the use of seven in Scripture. He says, quote, seven was symbolic in ancient Near Eastern and Israelite culture and literature. It communicated a sense of fullness and completeness. In fact, seven is spelled with the same consonants as the word complete and full in the Hebrew. So in Peter's suggestion, we not only have a recommendation of forgiveness that rises above all the rabbis of his day, but we also have a recommendation that is probably intended to communicate that I have completed my requirement for forgiveness. Giving them seven times, that's plenty. They don't get it right after that, hey, I tried. Right, Jesus? Right? Right, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not right. So how does Jesus respond? Let me stop before we get there, and let me say this to you. (laughs) Because let's not make light of Peter, of what Peter is calling for here to us this morning. It's easy to laugh off Peter in moments like this and say to ourselves, oh, silly Peter, how can he think that Christians are only called to forgive people seven times? What a trickster and jokester he is, right? But how often have you ever actually had to forgive someone who commits and repents the same transgression against you seven times? How many of you have even had to do that five times? How many of you have done that four times? I would venture to say some of you have cut some people off after two. And so what Jesus, what Peter is recommending here, this is not just, this is not ABCs, right? This is is calculus that Peter is offering here. Some of you are probably still struggling mightily to offer that forgiveness after that one slip. They just crossed the line too many times, pastor. 
So don't brush off Peter's recommendation too quickly without sitting with the weight of choosing seven different times to leave the transgression committed against you behind you. Now, with all that in the backdrop, pay attention to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77. Jesus calls Peter, the other disciples, and us to something so much higher than we could ever imagine. Now, Jesus is not giving Peter mathematics. Not just seven, but seven times 11, you know. He does not, he does not expect Peter to walk around with a memo scroll, right, and just kind of notching off as somebody crosses him, you know, getting to 76 and like, boy, listen, you got one more time, sir. You cross, you cross me again, and it's a wrap. That's, that's not what Jesus has in mind in this text at all. Jesus' point is not to reduce forgiveness to a counting contest. Rather, his point is to help us understand that for the Christian, forgiveness is a way of life. We just stop counting. For the Christian, forgiveness is embedded in the very fabric of our being. We must stop counting. Now, the world around us may be relentless in its commitment to dispose people when they cross these designated lines or cancel someone that doesn't toe the line in agreement with us, but such is not the way of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, may it never be said of you as a people that you withhold forgiveness when it is being sought after. Now, Jesus knows that he is cutting against the grain here and calling the disciples and us to what feels simply unreasonable. So that's why he gives us a parable, to make which, what is cloudy clear to those that really want to see. And so in verse 23, he said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. Jesus, from the very beginning, is rearranging our understanding on forgiveness by saying, yes, the world may have its own ideas on how to handle sin against them, but such is not the kingdom. The story I'm about to share with you, disciples, explains how we handle sin against us in the kingdom. And the king in this story, over this kingdom, of course, is King Jesus. And the servants are us. Now, in the kingdom, our understanding of forgiveness always starts with the king. Your understanding of forgiveness always starts with the king and how we relate to the king. He calls us servants, but really these are probably more so, more than likely high officials that are, that are considered serving under the king. They, they aren't like uh, runts in the kingdom. They are, they are probably folks that have a uh, place and position, but they serve the king. Does that make sense? And so they serve him. Jesus uses the character of servants because as, we, as people created in his image and likeness, 
We are now servants of the king. We owe our allegiance to him. We are called to serve him in every single way possible. But as servants, as officials of the king, they also represent the king. But also they owe the king. And that's the piece that unlocks all of the discussion about unforgiveness is our owing the king. Verse 24, it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is the debt that stirs our forgiveness. Let's think about this for a moment. One talent, one talent, equals 6,000 denarii, one talent. One denarii equals one day of a typical laborer's wage in ancient Israel. Meaning that what the servant owes the king is equivalent to 60 million days of labor. Now, to put this into, the con into context, if you started working for the king at a wage, let's say the king was very generous and he said, I'm going to pay you 10 times the typical uh, day, day wage for your labor. I'll pay you 10 times that. And let's say you decided to start working for the, that king at 10 times that wage for 100 years with no days off. You collect every single dime of it. You, don't, you, you know, you, you just pick up food from wherever you can pick it up and you just collect all of that money and then at the end of the 100 years, if the king is still alive, which he's probably not, but if he is, you say to the king, king, I have worked 100 years in your debt. Please take this sum of money that I have earned. You will have earned 365,000 denarii, meaning that even if that salary was possible, and you worked to the bone for 100, 100 years, you would have still only paid back less than 1% of the debt that you owed him. The point Jesus is making is that this man has a debt that simply cannot be paid back ever. It must be forgiven. Did you hear that? It must be Forgiven. You and I are servants of the king. We are called to serve the king. We are called to represent the king. But none of us have the capacity to pay the king back what we owe just through our service. We cannot repay our debt back. It must be forgiven. That is the debt of sin. Our sin against a holy and a righteous God is too big to be paid off by doing good things. It must be forgiven. There's not enough good that you can do in this life that can erase the debt that you owe. That's the debt that stirs forgiveness, but what about the penalty that stirs forgiveness? Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. The Bible says, and since he could not pay, there's just no amount of time that he can work. There's nothing in him that can produce such a repayment. And so the only thing that is right and just for a man that owes a man 
is restitution. And since he cannot pay back what he owes, the king punishes or the king threatens to punish, judges and threatens to judge. Saints, you and I have sinned against a holy God. When he says go right, we consistently and daily go left. We have mocked his ways. We have mocked his commandments. He has called us to one thing and we've chuckled and laughed at it. Who, who would ever do something like that? On countless occasions, we have made idols of creation. We've made idols of money, sex, power, family, material. And we've replaced God in our hearts, an eternal God in our hearts with temporal idols. As a result, the Bible says that our penalty for our sin against a holy and righteous and eternal God is a holy and righteous and eternal judgment. Brothers and sisters, hell is the place where our judgment is exacted for the debt that we owe God. That's where the debt is provided sufficient payment. We owe an insurmountable debt, and we are due an insurmountable judgment. What should a servant do when faced with such an insurmountable debt that requires an insurmountable judgment? The servant should plead for mercy, which leads us to the pardon that stirs our forgiveness. Verse 26, it says, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He cried out. He cried out, have mercy on me. Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. <laughs> you, ever made those, you ever made those prayers? How I many of y'all made those prayers to God? Oh, Lord, man, just, just, just come and just... Just help me, Lord, and I'll never do this again. I'll never do it again, Lord. I'll never do it again. I mean, he's, make, he's making a plea that, that he cannot feel, right? I'll pay you back everything. You, you can't. You can't. But the Lord looks on him with pity. The king looks on the servant with pity. And he releases him and forgives him of his debt. You know, it, it, it would have been, been a just king just to say, all right, you just work until you can't work anymore. And we'll just call it even. Right? Right? It would have been just for Jesus to say that. <laughs> hey, you just, work, you just work until you can't work anymore. We'll just, just call it even. Just get up and just grind it out every single day. We just, we'll call it even in the end. But if you don't grind, if you take a day off, cutting you off, it's over. It's over. But the king doesn't do that, does he? He wipes the slate clean. The man promises to work as hard as he can. And, of course, we know that the man can't work hard enough to ever pay back the debt. So the king says, no, your debt is erased. You don't have to work another day of your life to earn forgiveness for the debt. It's been wiped clean. That's what Jesus has done for you. No longer do you have to find yourself trying to earn his affirmation or earn his approval. 
through Christ, the Father has given you his approval. Through Christ, you've been crowned with righteousness. Through Christ, you've been given eternal life. And in the days where you work well, you'll still have eternal life. And in the days where you don't work so well, you'll still have eternal life. Through Christ, the debt has already been forgiven. You're not working to forgive that debt. It's been paid. That's the goodness of Christ. And you would think that was a great story until we get to verse 29. This is where the parable takes a horrible turn. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. So this man leaves with a 60 million denarii debt forgiven. And then he sees a man who asks for the same kind of mercy Have patience with me. I will pay you. Unlike him, this man can actually pay him back. It's only 100 denarii. He can actually make the payment. He can work hard and over time, you know, just make this payment. But the forgiven servant refuses and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went, and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So let's take a few minutes and unpack this as we wrap this thing up. There's the scandal there that stirs unforgiveness. This is a scandal. The servant refuses to extend mercy from the reservoir of mercy that he has been given. He's been showered with mercy. Now, notice that the king's call to forgive the fellow servant, when he goes to the forgiven servant and he, he, and he speaks, speaks harshly about him not forgiving the fellow servant, notice that the king, in no shape, form, or fashion, is concerned about whether or not, how, whether or not the servant's going to pay him back and all that kind of stuff. That's not where the king's Focus is, what is the king's concern? The king's concern is, have you already forgotten that I forgave you a debt that you could never repay? How dare you hold another debt over someone else when I've forgiven you of so much? You see, saints, when we lose our ability or commitment to forgive, it is often because we have lost sight of our debt. When we lose sight of our debt, we often lose our capacity and ability to forgive. You having trouble forgiving in your home? Probably because you've lost sight of how much you've been forgiven. 
You having trouble forgiving a family member? Probably because you've lost sight of how much you've been forgiven. You having trouble forgiving a coworker? Probably because you've lost sight of how much you've been forgiven. See, one reason, one big reason why the world cannot understand the depth of Christian forgiveness is because they cannot understand the depth that we all owe and that has been forgiven through Christ. When you're trying, so when you're trying to talk to like friends that aren't Christians, right, and they're like, man, I wouldn't forgive that person. Well, of course you wouldn't because you don't understand the debt in which I've been forgiven. That doesn't resonate with you yet. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to you yet. So if you don't understand that piece, then you're not going to be able to make sense of the call that I've been given by God to forgive others. You see, when we take, what we do is we take inventory of our, of our lives oftentimes, along with our worldly friends and colleagues, we take inventory of our lives and then we say, listen, I've never done anything that bad to anyone or I've never done anything that bad to you. So I reserve the right to withhold, withhold my forgiveness from you because I've never done anything that bad to you. But brothers and sisters, the grounds for your forgiveness does not rest in what kind of sin you've committed against each other. The grounds for your forgiveness lies in the fact that we stand sinful before God and are deserving of God's wrath. And yet he loved us with an unfathomable love and through, our unth- and through an unthinkable mercy, he has extended mercy to you and I. That's where your grounds of forgiveness rest rest. And so Jesus says, in telling the parable, he says that the king calls the servant wicked. Those are strong terms. You see, when it comes to forgiveness, we often make the mistake of believing that we reserve the right to withhold it as much as we desire for, uh, as much as we desire for as long as we desire. But this parable tells us that that's not the case. Jesus calls this man wicked for withholding forgiveness. You know, in the Jewish tradition, we talked about it earlier about forgiveness up to three times. Well, there's another Jewish tradition that is on the other side of the table that talks about how do you receive forgiveness. So when you're offering forgiveness, he says you can offer up to three times, and if they still continue to um, uh, conduct themselves in such a way, then you don't have to do that. Jesus has already said, no, that's not the case for the Christian, right? But the Jewish tradition says when accepting forgiveness, he said a person, if they come to you three times asking for forgiveness, and there is genuine repentance, okay, not, not, you know, not the phony stuff, but they are genuinely repentant, trying to make things right, and you continue to reject and continue to reject and continue to reject. And this is what they say. The f- offender now becomes the offended. What do I mean by that? I, means that? I mean that the repentant offender is now considered clear because they've asked for the forgiveness three times. And now the one who refuses to forgive bears the weight of sin. And so you see a similar thing taking place in this text. Now the servant that has been forgiven because he is unreasonable in withholding his pardon from his fellow servant, he has now become the wicked one. Do you see that? Notice that not only is he withholding forgiveness, but he is violent in his withholding of forgiveness. Chokes the man, pay me what you owe me. 
You see that oftentimes, right? That there's an arrogance in our unforgiveness. That there's a boldness in our unforgiveness. That there's a brazenness in our unforgiveness. When we've been forgiven so much, the king says you are a wicked servant because you've lost sight of how much you've been forgiven. The Bible says in verse 34 that the king is angry. In his anger, he delivers the the servant to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The king moves from merciful to wrathful because of the servant's actions. And withholding mercy from his fellow servant, the servant has in essence rejected the king's mercy. You can't reasonably expect to have a debt that you owe that extends through generations forgiven and then walk out with the audacity to punish a man for a debt that he can pay back in 100 days. And so that bruised the king's anger. And then lastly, the Bible says that he's thrown in jail until he can pay back his debt. In verse 35, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus' answer to Peter's question, how many times should we forgive? is to forgive him as much as genuinely and honestly possible, as much as they seek it, because this is what the king has done and is doing for you. And if you refuse to do so, know that you are rejecting the Father's mercy. Remember what we pray in Matthew chapter 6. Forgive others their trespasses, as your heavenly father, or rather forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, as we also have forgiven others of their trespasses. And Jesus says the reason why you say that is because if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. What is Jesus saying there? How could he be so harsh? He's saying if you don't have forgiveness, You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand it if you don't have forgiveness. It is rooted in forgiveness. Lastly, last thing. Let me say this. Just take a minute or two to say this. What if forgiveness is really, really, really hard? And there, and there are some things. You know, I, I know, I know that all of us in this room have probably experienced things that have made it really hard to forgive. Well, the truth about it is that much has not changed, or much does not change from what I just preached. you still need to continue to look back to the debt that has been paid. But let me offer one more pastoral word that I hope will encourage you. When forgiveness is really, really, really hard, fix your eyes on the king. 
and the goodness of the king. You see, oftentimes we hold our unforgiveness because that is the only justice we believe will come to those who have offended us. And so we think, hey, you know, this wound is so deep and nobody is getting punished for this wound. And so I'm just going to hold on to it. Justice is not coming for this wound. And so I'm just going to hold on to unforgiveness because that's my way to have justice for what has been done against me. But part of the journey of forgiveness is a journey of faith. It's not simply a journey of the will. And it's not simply a journey out of fear. Oh, Lord, I don't want the Lord to judge me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive because, I'm, because I don't want him to judge me. No, but it's actually a journey of trust. Do you trust that the king is good and that he will, when it's all said and done, establish righteousness and establish justice? Do you believe the king in Romans 8 when he says that all things are working for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe the king that he will make all things right? Because when you forgive, what you're doing is you're saying that even though this wound is deep and this scar is painful, I believe that when it's all said and done, justice will be served beyond ways that I can understand. I don't know if it's going to even happen on, in, in this person's life. I don't know if it's going to happen on the back of my Savior when he was on the cross. But I know you're going to make this thing right. And so because you're going to make this thing right, I'm going to let this thing go. J Joseph had a deep wound. Joseph in the, in the Old Testament was sold into slavery by his own brothers. By his own brothers. Sold into slavery. He worked despite that. And then he was accused of sexual assault on his principal officer's wife. Now, we can blame Potiphar's wife, but we can also blame his brothers because he would have never been there had it been for his brothers. And so he was accused of sexual assault also because of his brothers. And he was in jail because of his brothers. But then God moves him through that experience all the way to second in command in Egypt. And when he finally meets his brothers, Instead of saying, I will never forgive y'all for what y'all did to me. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he releases his brothers and extends love and grace and mercy to his brothers. Why? Because he trusts the king. Not because the brothers were so good, but because the king was. And so when it's hard to forgive, saints, remember your debt. But when it gets even harder, remember your king. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much.